Good evening, everybody. First off, a very special happy birthday to Michal Mirsky. Happy birthday. And a special thank you to the, the Greenwalds for sponsoring this evening. They're sponsoring the Shear for Rafua Shalema Sara Bas Frumit, and also in honor of the yard site of Chuna Shmuel ben Moshe Mendel. His neshama have an aliyah, and may Sara Bas Frumit have Rafua Shalema. The topic this evening is the unbroken spirit. And the, uh, the goal of tonight is to deal with the concept of struggle. How do, we, uh, how do we deal with struggle? How do we embrace failure? How do we pick ourselves up when we fall flat on our face? That's the unbroken spirit. And I think through analyzing one of the most historic and far-reaching struggles of all time, the fight between Yaakov and this mysterious man, hopefully we'll gain some insight into how to deal with our own struggles in our own lives. In general, whenever we come to a Parsha, the goal is to try to make it as personal as possible. What, what am I learning in the Parsha? What can I relate to? What can I apply to my own life? The Klaus and Bigareva, whenever they would lay in the Parshas V'yishlach, he would always break down during the Aliyah that spoke about Yaakov having his, his wives and his children all in a row as they're about to encounter Esav, and Yaakov himself was in the front leading the way. And he would always break down and he would think about the fact that there are 11 children there were 11 children that Yaakov was trying to protect. And he, he would think that I also tried to protect my 11 children. Yaakov crossed the stream, and so did I. He said, I also took my household and my children across a river. They crossed the river of blood along with multitudes of holy neshamos. But the idea is every parsha, every chazal, everything we pick up on trying to bring it home and trying to make it personal. So let's jump into this, this historic struggle between Yaakov and the, and the Ish, and the mysterious man. Torah tells us, V'yuvasar Yaakov levado, that Yaakov was left alone. V'yovek Ish imo ad alos hashachar, and a man wrestled with him until the break of dawn. V'yar kilo yocholo, when he, referring to the man, saw that he was not able to beat him. At that point, he wrenched Yaakov's hip at its socket. As they were wrestling, as they were rolling around in, in the middle of the fight. So this Malach, this, this Ish, says to Yaakov, Send me away, let me go. Ki Allah hashachar, for the morning has come. Vayomer loesh alchecha ki im berachtani. And Yaakov says back, I will not send you away, I will not let you go until you give me a bracha. So Vayomer love mashemecha. So the Malach said to Yaakov, What is your name? Vayomer Yaakov. 
ויאמר לו יעקב יאמר עוד שמך כי אם ישראל. So the Malach informs him that his name will be changed. No longer will you only go by Yaakov, but rather now you'll be called Yisrael. For you have wrestled with the divine and with men, and you have prevailed. So the name Yisrael is based on struggle. You have wrestled with the divine and with men. Who are those men referring to, says Rashi? That's a reference to Lavan and a reference to Esav. And you came out ahead. Hence your name is Yisrael. And now we have a very strange back and forth, one of the most cryptic dialogues probably in Tanakh. Vayishol Yaakov, Vayomer, Hagida no Shemecha. Yaakov asks the question, please tell me your name. Vayomer and the Malach says back, Lama Tisha Lishmi. Why do you ask my name? And he blessed him there. What is that back and forth? Yaakov says, tell me your name. And the Malach says back, why do you ask my name? That's the end of the conversation. Now before we analyze this more carefully, the Ramban tells us this was not a one-time thing. This fight between Yaakov and the mysterious man was not just uh, an episode that took place thousands of years ago, but it's actually Maisa Ovo Simon Lebanim. Again, we have an indication for the future. Says the Ramban that Yesh Doros Acherim, there will be other generations in the time to come, that again there'll be a conflict between Yaakov and Esav, and more harm will happen to the Jewish people will be crippled by that battle. However, just like Vyovo Yaakov Sholem, just like Yaakov is able to emerge whole and healed from that struggle, so too in the future, although we'll go through some pretty hard times and we'll be crippled in the process, eventually the Jewish people will come out whole as well. So here we have not just an episode in the history, but it's actually an insight into the destiny of the Jewish people. So who is this mysterious man? The Medrash tells us, Saro shel Esav hoya. He was the angel of Esav. He was the angel of Esav. Now, I want to share with you four very basic, very powerful questions. Question number one. Rashi says that he was struggling with Lavan and Esav, and he prevailed. Hence, he gets the name Yisrael. So Lavan I get. He was already in the house of Lavan for many, many years, and he was able to, to work his way out of there. But how can you say that, that he had victory over Esav? He didn't encounter him yet. He heard that Esav's on his way with hundreds of men intent on killing him, but they didn't meet yet. How could you say that he prevailed over Lavan and Esav? That's problem number one. Problem number two is we find almost the exact same dialogue in Sefer Shoftim. This is a, a conversation that takes place between the parents of Shimshon and a Malach and an angel. Let's read this together, source number six. Vayomer Menoach, this is the father of Shimshon, he says to the Malach of Hashem, 
Mishemecha, what is your name so we could honor you, so we could thank you? Vayomer Lamalach Hashem, and the Malach Hashem responds, Lama Zeh sounds very similar. Why do you ask my name? But then he adds one more phrase, Vahu Peli, my name is a secret. It's unknown. So you have this exact same conversation between the parents of Shimshon and a different Malach Hashem. And what's your name? And the answer is, why do you ask? But they add one thing, or this Malach adds one thing, my name is a secret. So why is the Malach adding in that phrase when it comes to the parents of Shimshon, but the Malach wrestling with Yaakov leaves that out? What's going on there? That's problem number two. Problem number three is a very fascinating Gemara. The Gemara says that as Yaakov was wrestling with this Malach, the avak, the dust that was being kicked up through their fighting, it went up, it ascended, ad hakavod, all the way to the throne, the, 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 the throne of glory. The dust went up all the way to the, the holy place of Hashem. Now where else do we find that phrase? Something going up to the kisei hakavod? That's the famous Gemara and Yuma that speaks about tshuva. The power that we have to return to Hashem, to correct our ways, to reconnect with the Kodesh Baruch Hu. Also the Gemara says, tshuva is so powerful it takes us all the way to the kisei hakavod. So what is, what's the connection between Yaakov wrestling with this Malach to say that the dust went up to the Kisei HaKavod? What does that mean? And how is that at all connected to Tshuva? That's the third problem. And the fourth and final problem is a Gemara that some of you, I'm sure, have heard before. This is source number 11. The Gemara tells us there were four people throughout history that eventually died of old age, but they never sinned in their life. They never made a mistake. They never did an Avera. Who were these four people? Binyamin, the youngest son of Yaakov. Amram, the father of Moshe. Ishai, the father of David, of King David. Vikilav and Kilav, one of the sons of David. Those are the four people that were in a league of their own. They never sinned in their entire life. And I'm just curious, by a show of hands, who has the custom to say, Ushpizin, on Sukkis? Okay, Yehuda. Ushpizin. What, what, what number is, is Kilav in the Ushpizin? <laughs> it's number eight. Where do we find Amram in, in the Ushpizin? Most people who don't have a pretty solid background, Binyamin we've heard of before. We know kids are named Benjamin, and that's after Binyamin, the son of Yaakov. He's more well known. But to say the four people who have never sinned in their whole lives, they're pretty much, they're, they're people that we never heard of. So what's going on with this Gemara? If these were the greatest tzaddikim of all time, the ultimate righteous people, so they should be in place of Moshe, they should be in place of David, why don't we all talk about David Amalek? Let's talk about Kilov. That's problem number four. So four issues here to address. The first is, when you have four questions, you almost forget what they are, right? The first question is, why does Rashi say that Yaakov struggled with both Lovin and Esav? 
if he did not yet meet Esau, that was only coming up in the future. Question number two is, why does this differ from the conversation that takes place between the parents of Shimshon and that particular angel, where he adds the phrase that, why do you ask my name? My name is a secret. Why was that not said with Yaakov and the angel? Question number three is, what is the Gemara and Chulin telling us that the dust as they were fighting went up to the, the, the Kiseh HaKavod? And question number four, what is this whole thing about the four people that never sinned? If they're that righteous, why haven't I heard of them before? Those are the four problems. So I want to share with you a Kliyokr, and hopefully use this as a springboard to have a better understanding of struggle and a deeper appreciation of, of failure. Klee Yucker, one of the great commentators in the 1500s in source number five, he says as follows. Who was Yaakov struggling with? Who was he fighting with? Shemalech Zehu Simoel. He was fighting with the representation of the Yetzirah. He was fighting with himself. He was fighting with his own evil inclination. He was having an internal struggle. What was that struggle? What is the, the modus operandi of the Yetzirah? Ki kol adam. We always have that driving force within us that blinds us from seeing the truth. That, 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 that takes away the clarity of life and confuses us. That was the struggle of Yaakov. He was fighting with the Yetzirah. The Malach that appeared to the parents of Shimshon, was that the Yetzirah? No. That was some messenger telling them that they're going to have a special child. So there, the Malach says, why do you ask my name? It's a secret, meaning to say, you're asking my essence. Whenever you say, what's your name, at least in Tanakh, the real question is, who are you? How do you work? The shame, the name of a person, is a representation or, or, or an expression of who that person is. That was the question in both cases. Who are you? How can I understand you better? To that the Malach tells the parents of Shimshon, I can't share that with you. It's a secret. And there are different interpretations. Perhaps there's no such thing as a Malach having his own identity. It's all based on the mission. Or perhaps the Malach was concerned about them trying to thank the Malach instead of Hashem. So forget about me, it's all Hashem. If you want to express your gratitude, go over there, not over here. When it comes to the, the Malach who was wrestling with Yaakov, because that Malach was the Yetzirah, that was one's own evil inclination, he didn't say, my name is a secret, because he doesn't have one name. Ravigda Miller says, that he left that phrase out because the Yetzirah comes in many, many different shapes and forms and sizes and colors. And sometimes it's that, that devilish looking person pulling you in that direction. Oh, that looks so good. I can't help myself. And sometimes it's, it's the Frumayid dancing around with a strimal and a kapata. And that's the Yetzirah. So because it comes in so many different shapes and sizes, the Malach didn't add, it's a secret, because I don't have a name. Whatever works, whatever your area of struggle is, I'll try to get you there. That's the, that's the challenge of humanity. It, life is not clear. There are no clear enemies. 
Wherever I am, whatever situation I'm in, whatever relationship I'm in, there's always ways, there's always things going on inside of my own brain that could distract me, that could take me away, that could cause me to crumble. Why does the dust go up to the, the Kisei HaKavod? Because the struggle with one's own Yetzirah is the holiest endeavor we could possibly engage in. You hear that? The struggle with your own Yetzirah is the holiest endeavor we could possibly engage in. That's the whole purpose of life. True or false? By a show of hands. The purpose of the Torah... Our goal is to do mitzvos. True or false? False! The goal is not to do mitzvos. The goal is to grow within the mitzvos. Not to stay here and, and, and do my thing with a sense of complacency and, and satisfaction. I'm good, life is tranquil. Life is never tranquil. The goal of Judaism, the goal of Torah, is to keep on growing and pushing and struggling within the mitzvos. That's why that dust goes all the way to the Kisei HaKavod, because that's as chashev, that's as important, that's as significant as tshuva. That's what life is all about. It's about the struggle. Why are these four people who never sin? why are they unheard of throughout history? Because just based on the fact that you don't make a mistake, doesn't make you a righteous person. It makes you flawless. You can be flawless, I never struck out once, but I never hit a home run. Right? Babe Ruth was the home run king. He was also the strikeout king. Being righteous, being a tzaddik, is not defined by being flawless. Sometimes you have to test yourself. Sometimes you have to get into a situation that's going to be difficult, knowing full well you might not pass this challenge, and you try anyway, and then you fall flat on your face. But that creates a tzaddik. I want to share with you a letter. And if you only came tonight to hear this letter, it was worth the trip out here. This is a letter from Rav Hutner. Rav Yitzchak Hutner was one of the, the great Torah personalities in the 20th century. He himself, when he was a young man, he went to the Slobodka Yeshiva. I think he got to the yeshiva when he was 14, 15 years old, but he was known to be a, a brilliant young man with a lot of potential. And right away, the altar of Slobodka, he was the head of the yeshiva, the mastermind behind the yeshiva, he, uh, he put little Yitzchak in a group of people who were easily four or five years his senior. And at first, they didn't appreciate it. Why are you putting this 14-year-old kid in our group? He's immature, we don't have patience for this. And the altar told them, just wait, you'll see. The kid has a lot of potential. So as he was in Slobodka, he grew enormously. But he had a very, very stark, very strong personality. He was known for that personality throughout his entire life. I'll share with you two quick stories. One story about Rav Hutner, that when he was still young, he heard from one of the helpers of the altar of Slobodka, that the altar wanted to daven for him. And that might have been the altar's subtle way of telling him he needs to work on himself. I'm going to daven for you. Anyone who's ever learned about the altar of Slobodka knows that he was very, very close with all of his Talmidim, 
and he could rip you apart. He could rip you to shreds, and he did so every so often. But he only did so because he also had the ability to put you back together. So he sends the message through a shliach that the altar wants to daven for Yitzchak Hutner. What's your name and what's your mother's name? So Rabbi Hutner at the time tells the middleman, if the altar Slobotka wants to know my name, I'll tell him myself. Why do I need you in the middle? And uh, he tried to explain, that's not the way things are done here. You know, the altar sent me on, on the mission. You tell me, I'll report back. So little Yitzchak Hutner, 16, 17 years old, starts walking towards the altar of Slobovka. He's sitting there, you know, in the, the east part of the, the massive yeshiva. And he's getting closer. The altar lifts up his head. He sees Rabbi Hutner on his way. He knows what's happening. So the altar yells out, Don't come within my Dalad Amos! <laughs> that was the kind of relationships they had back then. Imagine if we were in Slobodka, we would go off the derech in like 30 seconds. <laughs> Way too intense. But he knew what he was doing. He was able to build people like Rabbi Hutner. He said, don't come with my Dalad Amos. Rabbi Hutner stops right there and he yells out, Yitzchak ben Chana. You want to know my name? I'll tell you my name myself. I forget the exact year, um, Mrs. Eisenberg, your mother was on that plane, right? Was that 1970? 1970, where the, uh, the plane was hijacked. Right, on, it was taken to Jordan. So Rabbi Hutner was on that plane. And uh, th- that, that unto itself is a whole interesting conversation. All, the, all of the discussion that was taking place back in America, what to do, can we ransom him? He was you know, one of the Gadoli Hador. So the, the story goes that once the terrorists found out who this man was, that he was a prestigious rabbi, this is back in the day where there was still some level of respect in the world. We're way past that. But when they realized that he was a prestigious rabbi, one of the terrorists offered him a Coke. And Rehudna looked at him and he said, No, thank you. I like my soda chilled. That's a gavra. That's a man with strength and vision. So I want to read to you a letter that Rav Hudner wrote to one of his students. It sounds like from the letter the, the student was sharing with his Rebbe that he's fallen many times and he's failed. And when he was younger, he had these the aspirations of really achieving and really becoming something special in the Torah world. And now he just feels like He's accomplished nothing. Let's read together. This is source number 13. Rafudna writes, I received your letter and your words penetrated my heart. But I want to share with you a hashkafa. I want to tell you something special. There's a terrible sickness in our world, in our culture, which is when people speak about gedolim, when people talk about the greats, the Torah giants, they speak about them when they're 70, when they're 80, when they're these amazing, angelic human beings. But they skip over the inner struggle that they've been going through for decades. People don't talk about that. 
He says, everyone, for example, speaks about the Chafetz Chaim and the amazing purity of speech, and he would never say anything negative about any other human being. Says Rav Hutner, Who knows all of the, the battles the Chafetz Chaim had to go through? and the struggles, and the times when he fell, meaning to say, when yes, the Chafetz Chaim himself actually spoke Lush and Hora about a, a, another Jew. People don't talk about that. People don't think about that. But he was also a human being, and he had his times when he would fall down, flat in his face also. So what comes from this mindset? What comes out of a culture where we almost make these people into superhuman, saintly beings? The result of this is that when there's a young man who's a Baal Ruach, who's inspired, he's a Baal She'ifa, he has aspirations, he's excited about life, and then inevitably we find struggles and hurdles and we fall down, and we have a Yerida, and we descend from a, from a plateau that we reached before. So then you feel that, okay, you know what? I'm never going to be the Chafetz Chaim. I'm never going to be Ramosha Feinstein. I'm never going to be Rebetz and Kanievsky. Because look what I'm doing now. Look what I'm into. Look at the life I'm leading. Look at the conversation I just had with my friend. I can't believe I shared all that. Dirt. Says Rav Hudner, but you should know Chavivi. And, and what's so powerful about this letter putting aside the content, is, is the whole expression of love that you find in almost every line. Rav Hudner was also unique, and you find this with, with these types of personalities. You could be very strong, you could be stern, but at the same time, he was so expressive with his love and his admiration for others, and his admiration for those who struggled. He said, you should know my friend, my beloved one. Shishorish nishmosecha that the, the shorish, the root of your soul, is not about tranquility. It's not about sitting there, learning for, for 10 hours straight. That's a wonderful thing to do, and we should do more of it. But that's not where it's at. That's not your main growth. And he quotes the famous verse composed by Shlomo HaMelech. King Solomon writes, Sheva yipul tzadik v'kam. The righteous man falls seven times, and he gets up. So what does that mean, you fall seven times and you get up? Hatipshim choshvim, the stupid people assume, their understanding of that verse is, even though you fall in so many times, you still get up. But that's not the intent of Shlomo HaMelech. What was he telling us? He wasn't saying, despite the fact we've fallen. Rather, he was saying, because you have fallen. Because you fell flat on your face seven times and you keep on getting up, it's the strength that you're creating through pulling yourself out of the mud. That's the strength that creates the tzaddik. That transforms you forever. And he says, I, I want to whisper something in your ear. So I'll, I'll tell you the truth. If I received a letter from you and you were only telling me about all the wonderful things you're doing, and everything you're learning, and all the mitzvos, I would have said, you know what? That's a beautiful letter. Tov. But now that you're sharing with me from the depths of your heart, your, your failings, your fallings, all the things that are, that are holding you down, I don't say tov. I say tov ma'od. This is a letter. This is a precious letter I want to hold on to. 
Because now I see when there's struggle, there's life. And that's the key hashkafa here. It's so easy to look down at ourselves when we feel like we've fallen. Where am I now? I used to be this person, now I'm over here. Says Rav Huttner, if you're struggling, that means you're alive, and that means there's awesome potential. And the last line I want to share with you, he says, I share in your struggle as all humanity. But you should know that this burden, this challenge that you have, this is the womb of greatness. Greatness comes from struggle. With love and appreciation and admiration, your Rebbe Yitzchak Hutner. I want to share with you a story that I myself just learned about this past week about Dr. Solomon Imiak. Some of you might be familiar with that name, Mrs. Friedman's father. We were schmoozing at a little get-together, and he shared with me briefly some of his background. Right now, Baruch Hashem, he's a successful anesthesiologist, um, trying to speak to him over the last couple of days to get more of the details. We were playing phone tag because he shared with me he's seeing over 50 patients a day and things are crazy. So Baruch Hashem, he's doing well. He was born and raised in Cuba. And when he was 20 years old, his parents and his younger brother were able to escape to Venezuela. However, both he and his older brother, he's the oldest actually of three, he was 20 at the time, and his other brother, they were both in med school, they were not allowed to leave the country. They were placed in labor camps, and he was working in the sugarcane field under terrible conditions. Nine or ten months later, he falls off a truck and he breaks his knee. Um, the, the medical world in Cuba at the time was a wasteland. I'm not sure how much better it is nowadays. And um, what they did is they removed his meniscus so he couldn't walk at all. He was crippled. He's 21 years old. He could barely get around. He has to have crutches. And he's stuck in Cuba, him and his brother, together. I want to read to you. This is from the Associated Press, February 4th, 1985. After five years of being there together with his brother, they were able to be reunited with their family. The Castro's agreement to allow two young men to leave the country and visit relatives here is a strong indication that Cuban Premier seeks a warmer relationship with the United States, a congressman says. A 50-year-old Houston woman cried with joy Sunday night when she was reunited with nephews, she was forced to leave behind in Cuba 21 years ago. Oh my God, bless you poor babies, Ruth Halfin repeated over and over as 24-year-old Samuel Imiak and his brother Abraham, 21, stepped off a private jet with Congressman Mickey Leonard. He was a Democrat from Texas at Houston's Hobby Airport. After Mrs. Halfin had, refused, had been refused repeatedly in previous requests that her nephews be allowed to leave their homeland and visit her, Leland, Leland intervened on their behalf for the, over the last two weeks. It was not difficult at all to get Castro's permission for the brothers to leave Cuba, who made several trips to Cuba himself in recent years and met with Castro. This is now a quote from Dr. Imiak himself. 
being with my family, that is number one for me. Solomon Imiak told reporters in broken English, it's very emotional to be in the U.S., I'm trembling all over. Now, the last line of this article, Dr. Imiak shares his, his dream. Solomon said, he and his brother plan to resume their medical schooling. He said he hopes that both will someday become doctors in the United States. That was his dream, 24 years old. He was not allowed to stay in the United States, and he went to Venezuela to be reunited with his parents and his younger sibling. And there he finished off high school, and he was in medical school for three and a half years. From Venezuela, he had to move to Mexico, and Mexico only recognized one out of the three and a half years, and he had to be in medical school for another six and a half years in Mexico. Eventually, he moved to Houston. In the meantime, he met his love of his life, Esther. In Houston, he was there for nine months, working 16 hours a day. And then he had to take his exams to be certified in America. He failed more than six different medical exams, and he's not ashamed to say this. And he failed the English exams ten times. He told me that he spent four to five years out of his life taking tests, working for hours and hours a day, not sleeping that much, not seeing his family hardly at all. And by the time he was 40, he was able to actually become a doctor. Now people hear this story, and they'll probably say, the American dream. Yeah, the American dream. You work hard and you could accomplish a lot. And that's true. We can never underestimate, we can never have enough appreciation for what it means to live in America. Baruch Hashem. We have tremendous Hakara Satov. We're very grateful to be here. But it's not just the American dream. It's being a gavra. It's having that persistence. It's having a dedication. It's having a goal where no matter how hard it is and no matter how many times I fall, I keep on pushing because that's my dream and I know if I put my mind to it, I could accomplish. I'm able to do this. I have the capacity. I have the brain power. There are certain hurdles in my way. I don't speak the language, so I'll learn it. And I'll take a test ten times to finally pass it. That's persistence. That's the expression of Sheva Yipul Tzadik Vakam. I could fall down, but it's not despite the falling, it's because the falling, I'm a stronger person. And now Baruch Hashem, look at his family. We don't want to say too much when they're here. Mikzah Shvachav. But it's, it's that unbroken spirit that you see is passed on the door of the door. I want to share with you the secret. Right? How do we do this? How do we emulate that kind of lifestyle? How do we become stronger people? And I think the answer in a nutshell is, we have to believe we can. If we lose faith in ourselves, then we'll accomplish nothing. Most people, after failing that English test seven times, would probably say, you know what, I'm going to go in a different direction. This is probably not for me. But he had belief in himself, and therefore he had the courage to keep on pushing. There's an amazing source in the, in the Medrash Tanchuma that speaks about the dream that Yaakov had as he's watching the, the Malachim go up and down the ladder. And we spoke about this in the past, that really that was a prophecy for the great nations of the world. They'll ascend, but eventually they'll be taken down from their place of power and glory. 
But here's a conversation that most people don't know ever existed. Amr Loa Kodesh Baruch Yaakov, as Yaakov is laying there having this prophetic vision, Hashem says to Yaakov, Yaakov, Lama Eina Ta'ola, why don't you go up also? So Ba'oso Shah Nisyare Avinu Yaakov, at that moment Yaakov was afraid, and he said, Kishem Shiyesh Le'elu Yerida, maybe just like those Malachim, although they go up, they're coming down, Maybe if I try to go up, I'll also have to come down. Hashem said back to him, If you go up, trust me, you will not come down. So I would have assumed at that point Yaakov would heed Hashem's advice and go for it. What's the end of the story? The Lohimin, Yaakov didn't believe the low Allah and therefore he didn't go up. What in the world does that mean? Yaakov didn't believe? Hashem told you to go up. You're lacking belief in Hashem? The commentators explain, he wasn't lacking belief in Hashem. He was lacking belief in himself. He didn't feel he had the gavura, that he had the courage, that he had the strength to keep on pushing up and up and up without falling down. The message of Hashem to Yaakov was, if you keep on pushing up, I'll be there for you. I'll help you. It's a daunting task, but you could do it. You could make this relationship better. You don't have to keep this vicious cycle. You don't have to speak like that to him just because he spoke like that to you. You could push it if you believe in yourself. There's a famous line from Reb Tzadok HaKohen. He wrote, Just like we're obligated to believe in Hashem, You also have to believe in yourself. If we don't believe in ourselves, we'll get nowhere. I had a, a powerful conversation with a, a good friend of mine from LA. He himself was born religious, and he grew up in a, in a Frum household. And uh, somewhere in his later teenage years, he went in a very different direction. And um, he spent years and years like that away from Torah Judaism. And he shared with me what was the inspiration to bring him back home. What was his source of tshuva? He said, I was speaking to somebody. He wasn't even a rabbi. A friend of mine who happened to be religious. And I was sharing with him that I'm gone. I'm so far out of that path, it's just not me anymore. I'm off the derech. That's a phrase that's overused. I'm off the path. So this guy told them, he said, you're not off the derech. You know what off the derech means? That word or that phrase should be taken, crumbled up, and thrown in the garbage. The connotation is, you're not here anymore. You're over there. Don't define yourself based on what you did for the last eight years. That doesn't make you you. You have Bahira, you have free will, you can do whatever you want. And although that sounds so simple, he said that hit him like a ton of bricks. Just because I've been doing something else for the last eight years, or for that matter, I've been doing something for the last three or four or five decades, that doesn't define who I am. I can move up from here. Winston Churchill, in 1940, when he was trying to, 
to give Chizik to strengthen his country from the onslaught of the Germans. He gave a famous speech in the House of Commons. Winston Churchill was a character, as we all know. I remember a, a Rebbe of Man Yeshiva told me a story about Winston Churchill, that he was once at a dinner party, and he was known for, for enjoying a glass or two or seven of, of liquor. And he was a little bit inebriated, and he was saying things that he should not have been saying to, to somebody of the opposite gender. And she turns to him and says, I want to tell you something. If you were my husband, I would poison your tea. And without flinching, he said back, if you were my wife, I'd drink it. <laughs> That's Winston Churchill. <laughs> but at this, uh, this, uh, this talk that he gave in the House of Commons, I want to read to you a couple lines here. This is not for the sake of history, although he was a great uh, writer and a great speaker but I think we could apply this to our own lives. He's speaking about what will happen if the Nazis conquer the world. He says, but if we fall in the whole world, including the United States and all that we have known and cared for, will sink into the abyss of a new dark age made more sinister and perhaps more prolonged by the lights of perverted science. Let us therefore brace ourselves to our duty and so bear ourselves that if the British Empire and its commonwealth last for a thousand years, men will still say this was their finest hour. If the British Empire and its commonwealth last for a thousand years, men will still look back and say this was our finest hour. The struggle of Yaakov and Esau is the struggle that we all go through. That's the Yetzirah. And we're always tempted, and we're always distracted, and we're always lacking clarity. And when we feel down and depressed and insecure, it's in those moments that Hashem is telling us, just keep on moving up. This is not going to bring you down. This will make you stronger. This will bring you more courage. You think about, if I look back at my life, now we don't know how many years we have here. Life is a strange place. The world, existence... We look back and we could say, this was our finest hour. We'd be pretty happy people. So within every struggle, we have to remind ourselves, I can do this. I believe in the Kaddish Baruch Hu, but I also believe in myself. And this might be my finest hour in the mud. This might be my finest hour. Hashem should give us the clarity and the courage to have this, this perspective on life. When we judge ourselves and judge others, have a wonderful night.